Hello and welcome to this Independent Research Forum podcast. The IRF was founded by Edward Blad to represent the cream of independent investment research providers to institutional investors. I'm JP Smith and I'm in conversation today with Patrick Perrick Green, founder of PPG Macro, which is a research consultancy focused on macro strategy, combining big picture or secular trend analysis with more actionable investment and trade ideas spread across both short and long term horizons. Patrick's background is in both bond analysis and proprietary trading, so he's ideally suited to providing both his clients and ourselves with valuable insights into what it's fair to say is a very complex and difficult environment for investors compared to where we were pre-pandemic. He's also an expert in liquidity and liquidity creation, and clearly that's been a driving theme of these markets over the past six months to a year. Welcome, Patrick. Would you like to kick off today with a few observations about how we've got to where we are now and how you see the outlook before we debate some of the key issues? One of my core themes really since the beginning of last year was liquidity. So uh, I started off noticing that um, excess reserves in the US banking system started to fall very sharply at the beginning of last year. And funny enough, there was there's a huge correlation between reserves. Uh, I'll, come, I'll, I'll talk about those in a little bit more detail in a second. And equity prices and credit spreads. And um, so I call it, I had this chart, I call it, it's the GOAT. So it's the greatest of all time, what it was at the time. I go through phases, it's the Ronaldo of charts. Um, And excess reserves, people go, oh, excess reserves, just money in the system. But I sort of regard it, well, you can, there's lots of ways we can talk about money. I mean, it's very, very subjective. So some people like um, um, Lacey Hunt, for example, he likes to talk about other depository liabilities. This is a bigger number. Um, but for me, narrow money is effectively the oil in the engine of a car. And if we go back to 2007, 2008, for example, we had central banks tightening quite aggressively, not, nothing like as aggressively as they have done in the past 12 months. Um, but you've got a situation, for example, in the late 07, where Eurozone N3 was up 12.5% year on year, and M1 was basically zero. So you think about that in the context of an engine, that you're running your engine and you're bombing down the motorway doing it above the speed limit, but you've forgotten to look at your oil gauge. And eventually what happens is the engine blew up, blows up as it did in 2008. Um, where we are now is you had a situation, obviously, that deposit banks, deposits surged through everywhere combination of um, excess saving because people couldn't spend their money and fiscal largesse uh, and banks were left with lots of cash on the balance sheets and they go right what are we going to do with this uh, well small banks in the US basically said um, one we're going to lend out lots of money so their lending particularly in the in, actually over the past year has grown very sharply in small bank lending by the end of 2022 was up 14% year on year um, total loans and leases in the US banking system rose about 11%. And, and obviously, the other side of things we know with, okay, SVB is an egregious example, but banks also bought a lot of securities, partly for regulatory perspective, because you have to own HQLA, high quality liquid assets, 
but also just to get a bit of extra yield. Uh, you know, bankers are always greedy. They won't think about um, there's different types of, I mean, and I've come to that because I've worked in 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 on treasury desks in my career at banks. So basically, managing the bank, the bank's liquidity. And there's two ways you there's two ways you can run a treasury desk, and it was worth noting Andrew Bailey yesterday. One is basically you do it prudently, try and make a bit of carry, but hedge out as much of your duration risk as you can. And the other is treat it as a profit center, which is obviously what SVB were doing. And um, but anyway, what we what we saw was, um, for example, bank holdings of in the US of well, we can talk about total securities, but but let, the main th- body part, chunk of that about eighty odd percent of it is treasury and agency securities, so very high quality um, credit. Um, basically, went from sort of on the on the agencies and governments was around three trillion before COVID started, and went. Almost was about, I think the high was something like 4.8 trillion. So they basically act as another form of QE as well. If you think about that, you know, over a two year period, they're buying 1.8 trillion of, of bonds. Um, and obviously that kept yields down. Um, non banks also, when yields were low, non banks were very active. And one of the things that happened over the course of last year, why bank, why bank lending also started to pick up was as markets deteriorated and interest rates went up and spreads widened, um, the non-banks retreated from activity and banks were finding that actually we can make, we can make some money on lending, you know, because it's, we've got demand for it. There's less access to the markets, you know, the, all that VC um, stuff has, has gone to, has, has died, you know, the SPACs and all that nonsense. And, um, so they, they they have lent, but um, so we had a situation of first of all reserves started to fall, and then from about the April of last year, deposits at banks started to fall, and and the deposits were excessive. So for example, the loan deposit ratio got hit a historic post war low about sixty percent. It's now picked up dramatically as a combination of deposits falling and loans rising. Um, has normalised that, and I actually won't know the loan deposits. Um, but what was particularly noticeable uh, was when we talk. I mean, it's 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 a bit it's a bit of a myriad picture. So we can talk about all these things like cash assets on bank balance sheets and excess reserves. But funnily enough, cash assets on bank banks balance sheets is almost identical to excess reserves. In the actual number, but what we saw at small banks was their cash assets started to fall very, very sharply throughout the course of last year, and by October they were very poor. Uh, they'd, they'd fallen from roughly nine hundred billion to four hundred and fifty billion, whereas big banks had seen their cash assets fall, but nothing like on the same scale. And there's a great chart of that. Um, yeah, at the same time, small banks have been, as I said, have been aggressive in lending. So when we talk about US banks, there's this broad description, big, large banks and small banks. And it's very arbitrary. Basically, 
the Fed's definition of that, and you'll get that in the week. It's they have they publish a weekly H8 report, I think it's it is on a every on a, every Friday evening, which actually shows you all the liabilities and assets within the commercial banking system within the US. Um, it's very arbitrary. It's just the twenty five largest banks by assets, and obviously, as a couple of banks have gone, other people have now become a large bank. Purely, it's a, bit, it's a very arbitrary description. However, the smaller banks, um, so there's the top 25 have 70% of the banking assets in the US. The rest, and we're talking about several thousand banks, um, only have 30% of the banking assets. However, small banks are responsible to have 70% of the commercial real estate loans. On banks' balance sheets, no, it's not the universe of commercial real estate because obviously a lot of stuff is securitized. So, so we had a situation of small banks ran down their cash very rapidly, particularly relative to their total assets. So, actually, if we look at cash relative to assets, it's at low, it's at pretty much historic lows. Oh, sorry, post GFC lows. That's we've gone we, because we went to a different universe after two thousand and eight, um, particularly from a regulatory perspective. So we have a situation of they've run down their cash um, and all of a sudden things start to go wrong. And it's this, and I come back to this, is this analogy of cash is the oil in the monetary engine. And, and then you get, well, what was the little, I can't even remember, Silvergate, wasn't it? The crypto bank, um, it, tiny one. But then you have the other ones, uh, and then we get SVB and it, and, and Signature. And um, with different problems, Signature is more real estate related, but you end up with a situation that all of a sudden you get a deposit flight from small banks. A lot of that money has gone into money market funds, but some of it's also gone into the big banks like the JP Morgans of this world and Citibank. And... Um, and we end up with this situation. Now the problem is, we can deal. We can, you know, I saw Schwartzman um, coming out saying, "Oh no, don't worry about this banking issue. It's all sortable." You know, oh, and in the words of Kristen Keeler, he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, you know, and I'll come on to private equity later on. But we have a situation that. Um, we already have a weakening economy. If you look around the world, um, I can give you multiple data series, be it Taiwan exports, Korean exports, Chinese exports, uh, new orders, whatever. I mean, it, and it's global. Um, so we are seeing the sort of a definite slowdown. I think the, the economic growth forecasts of most of the official bodies are, are, are the usual rubbish. Absolutely, Patrick. I mean, this is this 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 slowdown is a sort of cumulative impact of we had the sort of reopening everywhere post post COVID, and now some of the and obviously that produces a sort of reaction. And now what we're seeing is some of the structural factors, um, what Summers would have termed secular stagnation, and, and and quite a few country specific factors. If we look at places like Japan and maybe China in particular, and then added to that, obviously. 
you've got the impact of what's happened in the um, in, in, in the energy markets in, in Europe, particularly gas. And although the price has fallen now, that hasn't found its way into either industries or, or households. So all these are reasons why, as you say, the multilateral institutions, as usual, are, are way behind the curve. But as a broader issue, what is the real value of banks' loan books, yeah. um, particularly against commercial real estate? So when I talk about the, the Pimcos and the Brookfields literally hanging, handing back the keys on because, um, because but they it's that of course they're not defaulting in their own name they're defaulting in the vehicle's name so there'll be a CMBS against that particular property called you know whatever name it is, um, and you've got Blackstone um, with multiple loans or CMBSs going into what they call special servicing. Uh, and Blackstone, which, um, you know, unable to give people enough redemptions on their big, supposable, wonderful REIT. So what we're left with is, one, FDIC is going to dump a load of loans. It's quite happy that the, the fund will take the hit and the banks will have to pop the fund up through fees down the line. But it's a broader issue, is that... This is like a heart attack and the FDIC, or let's just call them the feds. So the combination of Treasury, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, they all get involved because um, the Treasury had to give backstops to FDIC, et cetera, et cetera. So the feds have come in, uh, they've used the defibrillator, get the patient up and walking again. The reality is the patient's still suffering from damage and... Um, not only that, now everyone's focus is on banks. So everyone now is talking about their securities position. Um, you know, what is the, even though the FDIC publishes that data every quarter. So even before, so we knew that at the end of beginning of this year, that banks had, US banks had $620 billion of unrealized losses on their securities holdings, which is about, uh, 30% of the capital in the US banking industry. So I mean it's it's, it's, it's they can deliver it's livable if you think that you if you think that US banking profits are going to remain around about 200 billion per annum. And the big boys should be fine. But what it means is and all the focus on deposits all the, and what we're saying so for example the uh, loan deposit ratio of small banks has absolutely rocketed in the past two weeks. And we'll get some more data on the end of this week, which will show a further deterioration because we can tell deposit data lags uh, what we know about money market fund by about a week in terms of the speed that we get that data. So we know that money market funds have surged. So when we get the deposit data on Friday for the week up until the 22nd, we'll see another big outflow of deposits from US banks. So if you uh, put it the other way around, I'm a banker. My deposits have gone down. Okay, we've had loans that we've approved that we've got no, no. So you will still see some of the loan numbers actually tick up recently, but that's only because that's the natural pipeline, the lag. You know, I get a loan approved, I don't draw it down that day necessarily. However, going forward, most banks are just not going to be considering new lending. They're looking, they're firefighting, you know, when you're worried about your cash position, all of a sudden, you're basically going to put 
most loan applications, not the small little consumer ones that are not, not economically significant, but anything larger, you're going to be going, whoa. And not only that, if you are lending, you're going to be widening your spreads, so charging more, increasing the amount of collateral you want. So reduce, you know, so instead of, oh, we'll give you 75 or 80% loan to value, we'll give you 60%. And then you get, which also brings me to another issue. So when we talk about those FDICs and the discounts on loans, and then there's the, the stuff that the banks didn't want. So what is the, what is the disposable price of those loans the FDIC has? The onus regulators are now going to be all over banks. So fine, the securities portfolio are easy to monitor. I've worked in bank treasuries. You can literally sit, click, press F9, and that will show you your bucket risk. You know, the, the exposure by year, by credit, quality, all this sort of stuff. What your liquidity requirements are. So you have to have liquidity buffers. I, we used to have a, a rule that you, in the UK, I, th- I don't know if it's got tighter, it probably has. But we used to have have to have uh, 91 days liquidity, i.e. enough liquid assets on the balance sheet that we could provide 91 days of normal cash outflows. That liquidity buffer. So you're all, you're, everyone's focused on that now. So you're going to protect your liquidity. But then the other issue becomes: well, if the regulators are in, and not only that, the auditors, but as if you're a responsible banking executive, you're going to be all over your loan book, making sh- checking. Actually, is the collateral value of that loan sufficient? You know, or has you know we lent. We gave someone a 70% mortgage on a commercial building. But hang on, there's no way that that building is worth 100 still. Now, and then then they get to the interesting situation is, okay, so you've got, you know, collateral rules, covenants on that loan. So let's say the building is now worth only 70 and but the guy's got to have only allowed a seventy percent mortgage. Well, he's going to go and find another two hundred. Let's say it's a a billion dollar building, or you know, a million dollar building. I mean, just let's even keep it simple: a million dollar building. He had a seven hundred thousand dollar mortgage, but it's only worth seven hundred thousand dollars now. Well, that seventy percent of seven hundred thousand is four hundred ninety thousand. So he's got to go and stump up um, two hundred ten thousand dollars to keep his mortgage in order. Well, the reality is most people don't have that. So you end up in breach of covenant, you're effectively defaulting on the loan, the bank will end up repossessing it and knocking it out. And you can see, I mean, there was a story yesterday about the the Chinese guy who's got a couple of buildings that he's defaulted on in Canary Wharf. Um, And the valuations were, he bought them for sort of 400 and on plus, and I think Lloyd's Bank is trying to is offering it out at two hundred and fifty. And this becomes the other issue. So don't forget, when banks own stuff, they're pretty indiscriminate about what they get rid of it for. They not they are not asset managers. They're not going to sit there and say, oh, "I'm going to manage this portfolio forever." We, we we provision against loan. That's the whole point against about provisioning. So the fact we have to take these take you know actually utilize those provisions. We'll do it. So they basically just go to market. And 
I'm, I'm going to be honest here. I, I've, I've, I've been on the other side of that equation in the sense that um, when we had the big pubcos in the UK, uh, Enterprise and Punch and in Breach of Covenants, they were forced to sell off parts of their portfolio to realise cash. And I actually have picked up, I actually own two pubs that I picked up for a song because they were forced sellers. Right. Well below intrinsic value. But then that knocks on through the whole market. And it's not just um, commercial property. There's also residential. So I, I live in central London, I'm in Pimico. I, I keep a very close idea on my local property market. Um, you know, I have a house elsewhere, but um, I rent in London because I've basically taken the view to be short property. And um, I'm seeing some real sharp moves. And the problem is people forget the way banks work. And this is, I'll give you a UK example. Banks look at what's the recent transaction in that postcode. Uh, and they go like, uh, looking at land registry in the UK. They see that and they go, right, and you know, you get, a, you get this vicious circle. So something, someone has to sell something, then that, automatically officially red, lowers the uh, the price per square foot for that area and then someone else wants to come and buy it so let's say they think a place is worth a million but the bank and you know and they want a 75 percent mortgage but the bank goes actually we only think it's worth eight hundred thousand. so and if you want to pay a million for it fine but you we're only going to lend 75 percent of eight hundred thousand. so if you, you know you can pay a million, but you're going to have to pay four hundred thousand yourself rather than two hundred fifty thousand, and that's how everything jams up. So we get this hit of activity. Banks don't want to lend. At the same time, borrowers they see what's going on. Uh, the pro, you know more collateral, higher rates, weaker confidence. Well, actually, you know actually we don't. We're going to hold off. And this is what happens. So you get this knock-on effect as well. So not only do you get problems in the banking system, and what I would recommend is everybody should go back and read up on the savings and loans. I was just thinking that, yes. And also in the UK, maybe on the period at the end of the um, 1980s and beginning of the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, I think the UK is actually in remarkably good condition. So... For example, I was reading yesterday. You had the Financial Policy Committee of the Bank of England came out. So I, uh, and they were talking about um, you know the risks of the system, and, and UK banks actually are very well run these days. They have very you know, apart from Barclays with its uh, markets division, um, they've completely retrenched for all that overseas balance sheet activity. So you think about well, what now is NatWest and its balance sheet, and what it was. Um, in 2007, when its when its when its balance sheet was one and a half times UK GDP, it's a completely different beast. And their trade their treasury operations, are, you know, they focus on hedging. They're not looking at this is great big cash cow. They they just use UK consumers as their big cash cow. Uh, you will pay you nothing for your deposits. No, no, absolutely. I mean, if but that's a different. Yeah. If, we, if we put all this together, Patrick, if, we, if we're primarily talking about the US here, I mean, there are other hmm. places where the property market's been conspicuously weak. I mean, I'm thinking of places like Sweden and Canada and, you know, Australia, Australia, Australia you know, and even Europe now. 
you know, let alone China, which is a whole separate issue, of course. Um, but but if we look at the US, I mean, is it? I mean, it's impossible at this stage to quantify the impact. I would guess, but is it fair to say that this adds to the existing pressures that that, that were there? And that also this time lag that's built in between monetary tightening and the effect on the real economy, it would seem to compound that as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, so the you know there's the there's the the San we've always had this short what is the shadow Fed funds rate? The San Francisco Fed publishes one, and it basically, and you can and actually it's if you look at the the spread of mortgages now, 30-year mortgage versus a 30-year treasury, which is now over 300 basis points, which is wider than it was back in 2008. Um, it basically puts the shadow Fed funds rate at around about 7%. And this is going from about minus 2% 18 months ago. Yeah. So a, a, an extraordinary rapid tightening of monetary policy. And not only that, and this is, this is a general point. So I, I was at a lunch back in October and there was a now retired Fed president was out there and I raised the issue with him about um, one money supply was starting to contract and he sort of rolled his eyes it's like oh central bankers don't believe in money supply anymore right okay and this is the other issue we have not seen US money supply fall in the entire post-war experience so the data going goes, we get the official data set from the FRED website, goes back to 1959. But I think the last, you know, I did economic history. Um, I think the last time US money supply actually contracted was 1937, uh, which we got a very nasty recession. So there's that's one thing. So central bankers all sit there with their models, but none of them have actually ever, weren't even born when money supply last contracted. So this is why when I did my last um, podcast with you guys, uh, I, I called it "Into the Unknown," because people don't have the don't know what's going to happen. Um, so you have falling money supply and a very very dramatic tightening money policy, and then there's the other side of it as well. So you know, old farts like me, um, we remember. I remember what my first mortgage was, and it was it was like fourteen percent. Yeah, um, you know, but you have a whole generation. So you think about it. I mean, rates went to zero in two thousand and eight. Okay, so pretty much nobody under the age of forty three thinking about the age that you were likely to buy a house. Well, if you could buy a house, but even if you were thirty in two thousand and eight, let's say that's the time you could buy a house. So you're forty five now. So if you're basically under 45, you have no idea of what it is like to function in a normal interest rate environment. You've made permanent allocations towards your debt service that are much lower than historically we've seen, you know, that we've seen historically. And it's not just individuals, it's businesses, it's governments, it's everyone's, you know, look at the, the, the CBO, the National Budget Office and their forecasts of debt service. So you have this double whammy. All of a sudden, you've got to pay more. It's good for savers, and it's good for pension funds because their liabilities collapse because rate long-term rates have gone up. Um, but it's a whole mindset. 
And of course, there is the lags as well. So early, early, late February, or beginning of March, actually, was the I, I wrote a note to my clients and I called it, how much is enough? So it's just going into the Federal Reserve. And just because you get a slightly higher, hotter inflation number for, Feb, from, for January or whatever it was, doesn't mean that you automatically, you, you know, central banking is not whack-a-mole. You've tightened and tightened and tightened and tightened. And as they keep on telling us, the lags are long. Uh, well, so just reacting, because, oh, that number, well, just because it's a little bit hotter than we thought it was going to be. But overall, the trend is clear. Being so reactive, even though the markets took it that way, it's just insane. So, so, so but, but Patrick, one, one, one of the problems, obviously, or, or issues in financial markets is that sort of narrative um, follows follows price. I mean, it's a, a cliche, but it but it's true, isn't it? And the narrative that, that's been creeping into the market, really, I would say over the past year, particularly maybe over the last nine months or so, has been that the sort of secular pressure on inflation is is higher. And obviously, the central bankers themselves now have become very influenced by this as well. So people are looking at things like structural changes in the labor market. So one of the issues, if we're looking at where Fed policy goes, and particularly if we're looking at asset allocation and bond markets, is how do we trade these sort of factors off against each other? Or, or is it the case maybe that these sort of secular factors have, have actually become overdone? They, they're becoming an overwhelming part of the narrative. And actually what we may be starting to see now with this banking issue is, a, is, a, is, is the beginning of a pivot back to an environment where people recognise, investors recognise, markets recognise, and eventually central banks recognise that tightening has gone too far. Oh, I agree. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about, I mean, uh, well, I've actually, they've been absolute, uh, it's, it's sort of, I'm a big believer in media headlines. So The Economist is one of the best inverse indicators absolutely you could do it you could do a, a presentation consisting entirely of those covers and in fact um, so for example beginning of march they go like you know talking about rates going up and inflation being hot and then you know last week so i had a, i had a great time so i do a this week past two weeks I've, I've sort of like gone okay this look, i'm not gonna it's pointless me writing big macroeconomic notes look at all that data it's all about price action and psychology. So most of my clients, a lot of my clients are hedge funds uh, yep. who are active traders in interest rates. So we've actually had these enormous ranges, which we haven't really seen since 2008. So a whole generation of young traders don't know that volatility. So of course they get absolutely steamrolled um, because they don't understand psychology and they're having to be very, very active. But then on Friday, I, on the weekend note I sent out, I, I basically said, last Friday I sent out a note, and I, five year note, for example, got down to three and a quarter. And I said, that's, well, I don't want to be owning it. I don't want to own it here. Not necessarily going to be short or pay the rates or sell the bonds, but I don't want to own it here. Uh, and then there's a classic Bloomberg article that comes up. They said, you know, rates to bonds rally as um, investors. Uh, put on recession trades so it's like rates are at their low that we just you know we just had a, a big bull market in 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 treasuries or global bonds and there's a bloomberg headline going going on about the, all the arguments of why you should be bullish you're being bullish at the extremes so i was just like oh, that's a get out of dodge headline for me just 
head for the hills. Um, I mean, financial journalism, the standard of it is appalling these days. Apart from a few good bits and bobs, I find as a whole, the, the, the overall standards are abysmal. I mean, put it this way, a lot of, no, very few final financial journalists would actually ever get a job in my re- on my research desk. Well, I'm just having a little rant now, grumpy old man. Yeah, yeah. I, I can think of a couple of exceptions to that. But anyway, let's have that discussion. No, there's a few. But anyway, so what we're seeing, so all of a sudden, we've got already a softening activity for a whole variety of reasons. For example, what is it? Uh, was the headline last the other week? Oh, yes. Um, global bike sales are at, are at a 20-year low. Because everyone bought the bike. Of course, during the pandemic. Absolutely. Or bought the Peloton, the most expensive clothes horse in history. Um, and, you know, they just stuck it in the corner now. So you've got a whole load of, a lot of goods demand was brought forward. So we look at global trade volumes and they have fallen off a cliff. Yeah. Um, and what's, and, it's, and the interesting thing is, so I look a lot at freight and for people as a whole, one, one site I would recommend they, they follow is FreightWaves.com. FreightWaves. Uh, it's, it's free access. You get all this stuff about global freight, trucking rates, what we're seeing about rejection rates, which is like how many contractors are turning away jobs. You know, rates have collapsed. Container rates have, as Lord Wilson's talking about, container rates have collapsed. They're lower than they were. They're at five-year lows now. Um. The amount of containers going into the West Coast from China is has fallen at a precipitous rate. And so if you, it's one of the live measures. So forget it. You know, we sit there waiting for economic statistics from official bodies, but they're always lagging. You know, I, you can see the daily freight rate. What's going on? Is there an uptick? Is the volume? What's going on? You know, so I, I describe freight as a whole as like an ECG of the economy. Yeah. Um, and it is dismal and it's continuing to fall. So this is this so we've got a, a weak background, and then what you have is what's going on in banks, another very sharp tight tightening of financial conditions is I mean the, you know the Federal Reserve should be listening to Mike Tyson. So so again, if we if we if we think back to what happened after the financial crisis, we saw a massive injection of liquidity. I mean, I was um, working for a Swiss bank at the time. Obviously, mm-hmm. the Swiss were running around. They were the last people to leave the gold standard. Famously, they were running around saying, "Oh my God, this is inflationary." And and I said, "No, no, it's not." But I, but I can't actually tell you why it's not. I, I just don't think it is. We're still in a very disinflationary environment. And of course, the answer. I mean, there were structural trends, there was China, there was technology, though the China factor was already fading. But the big reason, I think, was the velocity of money. And the velocity of money was weak because exactly. the um, gains from that injection went to a relatively well-off segment of the population. Now, recently in the labour market, we've seen the opposite phenomenon, which I would call almost the revenge of the blue-collar workers. So just listening to you, <clears throat> you're saying to what seem to be slightly opposing things. On the one hand, you're saying we are in this environment where the Fed has probably tightened too far. We've got these lags built into the system. Mm-hmm. We've got this squeeze in the banks. On the other hand, you know, your view on the five-year rate was that it had gone down. It was very much, this is very much a trading a tactical, view. Okay, you know, so I can, in a year's time, yeah. I think rates will be, you know, so we've backed up from like three and a quarter to 370 in a matter of yeah. three days. I thought that was and the I, case. I'm going to my client's, 
I want to own that because I cannot yeah. see US rates being at 370 for the next five years. Yeah. Yeah. The difficult bit at the moment, Patrick, isn't it, is, is seeing when we break out of these trading ranges, right? Because we have been, I think, in both bonds and, and equities, really, in there's been some volatility, particularly recently, but we've been a fairly well, what I would term, well, well, relatively well-defined trading well, range. Well, I, I think that the thing is, right, so where are we on, where are we now? One, money is more expensive. So actually, what you start to do is you start to move towards corporate deleverage. You get rewarded for reducing your debt. And actually, people forget that it's nonsense when Powell talks about balance sheets. Corporate debt as a percentage of US GDP is at record highs. Excluding, you know, pandemic distortion bounces. Yeah. It's at record highs. A lot of that's because of buybacks, isn't it? Well, they, well some of it, but, but just overall business debt is very high. Household debt is okay, but business debt is not high. And, and that brings me to where I think we could have a situation is we, you know, we can have a, a bit like 2000, 2001, is a balance sheet recession, but also a valuation recession. So as you talk about tighter labour markets or certain shortages, but they seem to be easing quite rapidly now is that that ultimately leads to margin you know look weaker demand that ultimately leads to margin compression weaker earnings and equities remind me of what they did in like late 07 so for example we had the LIBOR crisis in, in the august um yeah. in october the s p hit its highs and i remember talking to my equity colleagues when i was at Citibank. they were going oh it's great m a activity is good earnings are strong Yada, yada, yada. And we were just looking at them and like, do you have any idea what's going on? So, yes, we've had this bounce in equities. Um, but going back, but there is no re- real rationale for it as a relief element. So maybe people who are positioning is short, but the, the fundamental arguments are no, do not own. I, I'd say that's very. And I think, I think in equities, most people recognise that, don't they? I mean, if you look at the, I mean, the street is obviously almost invariably too optimistic. But you know, if if you look at um, sort of consensus expectations for where the S and P goes, you know, they're relatively conservative this year. And and you know, you've got some fairly outspoken bears like Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley too. I mean, I, I, so I think. And obviously, you've seen this massive amount of money piling up in short-term money market funds too. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the real action likely to be in in the bond markets? If we if we well, no, we've already had a fair amount of action in the bond markets. I mean, the bond markets, it's sort of, um, you know, from where we've been. So, if you think about it, a ten-year note was as high as four forty in, I think October four thirty. And we're down to like three and a quarter on it. So we've had a big move in bond markets. The yeah. interesting disconnect is that equity markets uh, are not really following the message of bond markets. Um, and um, I would, for example, I was back, back in October, November, I actually got very bullish about um, equity markets and dollar bearish and everything like that. Now, this is the other This is the other thing. This is the global thing. So I'm, I'm, and I actually need to get this point in. Is basically dollar liquidity. So people talk about global money supply and Chinese money supply, but Chinese money supply basically is internalized. It doesn't really get out. It, the only money supply that really counts for the world is US dollars. And the BIS for many years has gone on about... Uh, external debt, global debt, that's in the, call it the euro-dollar universe. 
Um, and, and this is 2016, their original papers from, and it was like, there's $12 billion, trillion of offshore on balance sheet dollar debt. And then there's another, at least the same amount again, in shadow shorts, i.e. through derivative transactions. So I've issued a bond in dollars, but I've swapped it back into Aussie dollars, but I have it. effectively, everything's compounded. So there's a huge, I always call it the big short, but in the sense that everyone's short the dollar. Yeah. And if US dollar liquidity is collapsing, and it's all very well swap lines and stuff like that. But as I said, UK banks don't really have much external exposure anymore. European banks don't really have that much external exposure anymore. And you can have the swap lines between the ECB and the bank and all the, you know, the nice, well-off banks, but they're not the problem. It's everyone else, you know, who borrows dollars or the Cayman stuff, you know, and, and, and what I would say is, again, one of the things that was in yesterday's financial policy committee report was the concern about private, it's the shadow system. It's private equity, I, I call pirate equity. And private credit and all this other stuff. So what is the real mark to market on those books? Just as what is the real mark to market on commercial real estate books? And this yeah. is the problem. And not only commercial real estate, but we can talk about the likes of Ali Financial, whose capital relative to uh, their assets is at historic lows, except they're the biggest lender of auto loans and their delinquencies are starting to shoot up. Uh, and an accelerating rate. I and mean, it's going to be very interesting when we, in the next uh, month or so, when we get the latest banking data on delinquencies and credit, because um, it, it lags, unfortunately. But um, the, the rate of change in delinquency, so obviously a lot got hidden during COVID and forbearance and stuff like that, and people had flush with cash. But it, it's it's as that this starts to kick in. So then we end up in an environment of weaker growth, softer confidence, excessively tight monetary policy. Yeah. And we are going to see, don't forget, very, very sharp falls in inflation because largely because of base effects from the very large increases we saw really in the particularly, you know, in the second and third quarters of 2022. And then then it's going to be a challenging environment. And one thing I would say is people talk about the inverted yield curve. It's not the inverted yield curve you really have to worry about. It's when the yield curve starts to steepen. So people think, oh, yield curve steepening because rates are going to come down. That's actually when equities do really, really badly. Yeah. Yeah. It's also perversely, and I heard some talking head on Bloomberg the other day who was far too young and far too stupid to really know what they were talking about. And they were talking about, oh, lower interest rate expectations are dollar negative. Well, actually, go back and see what happens when the US yield curve steepens. Actually, the, it tends to, it's not a good signal for the rest of the world. The dollar actually strengthens. And that's a key point, right? Because that relates to the sort of generalised economic weakness and um, also the sucking in of some and liquidity. Exactly, and a stronger yeah. dollar means tighter global financial conditions. Yeah, so in other words, the sort of consensus trades at the start of this year, and tell me if I'm wrong, but sort of long commodities, especially energy, long emerging markets, they're not working out. People are still stale bulls in them. And, and in that scenario, those are going to be just about the worst places you could be. 
And, you know, another thing where the, the first cousins are, uh, are wrong um, is about China. And I, I do an awful lot of work on China. I basically... And, and you, were, you, were based, you were based in Asia for, what, six years or so? No, yeah, well, Asia APAC related, both in Singapore, but then I, I did spend a year in Sydney and working for ANZ within London. So, but, you know, you're all part of that. You just, once, you, once you've done it, you're in it. Yeah. And follow it very closely. So I've been very big. I mean, you know, the, the I've been very much in the China beige book camp. You know, it's pushing on a string. There's so much damage to commodity to confidence, and even before COVID. So when Xi, I always call it the Stalinization of Chairman Xi, and how much uh, the regime change has actually affected. So we what we saw, even it was like when he got his second term from 2016, the birth rate absolutely plunged. Fell off a cliff, just like, well, why? Why is that happening now? Well, it's because well, actually life isn't as good as it was. And also there's a tightening up, of, you know, the bank lending and all that crazy lending stopped after the deval in 2015. So there's a big changes in psychology. So when central bankers are talking about, oh, China's going to boost global inflation. No, it's not. It's not. Because, because the liquidity generated in China by the PBOC is, is not fungible. No, I mean, they're basically doing, so you'll hear about total social trans, you know, money supplies up strongly this year. That's because, they, one, they brought front-loaded a load of debt issuance, but that debt issuance has largely been by the, the state and local governments. It's not private sector. Households are, are barely borrowing. No, they're anything. propping up local government financing vehicles. And, they're and, it, and there's, so there's, they're basically, this is QE, stealth QE. And... Um, and then you've got the problems, all the other issues of falling demand externally. So net exports were a plus for Chinese growth. And let's not forget about real estate. So going ahead, we've still got this labyrinth-like mess with property. You know, the huge excess of available property as well. And not only that, activity has collapsed. So if you look at land sales, which are about half of what they were, and yeah, in Chinese Ponzi terms, about 70% of the land sales in the past seven, uh, six, six, six to nine months have been to local government financing vehicles. Of course, of course. Not, and not so, but the land sales are down. So if you look at land sales as a proxy for starts, well, going forward, as buildings are completed, the new amount. So there's another side for the commodity bulls who will go on about everything. China takes over 50% of global copper. The, re the residential property industry takes 50% of China's copper usage. So 25% of global copper demand goes into Chinese real estate. 70 of most of, 70, about 70% 70 of that goes into the powers and transmissions and the other 30% goes into buildings. But if your building rate falls by half, then that's 12.5% of global copper demand. No, you're going to have to sell a lot of electric vehicles to make up for that. Yeah. So, you know, it, we're in a, we're, you know, the, the big forces, the disinflationary forces that were there before COVID. Um, so I, I'm not in, uh, what's his name, Goodhart's camp about uh, aging populations being inflationary. Um, you know, Japan certainly argues against that. Is, you know, basically people become more conservative, they save their money. You know, when you get old, yes, you might need more healthcare, but that sofa you buy is going—that sofa you buy is going to be the last sofa you ever buy. 
Yes, I think I've just bought my last ever sofa, actually. <laughs> weeks you know what I mean? And this brings me to another point, so where we go back to. Basically, bank lending is, right, financial conditions have tightened materially. So I was, you know, I think Torsten Slock said that what happened was an equivalent of 150 basis points of tightening. Uh, at the time I wrote, I think it's at least 100 basis points. Bloomberg were coming out with, oh, it's about 50. But then people in Bloomberg couldn't, you know, run the proverbial in a in a in a in a in a brewery um but i think it's i think that's reasonable because what we don't know and this is going to be the big thing where we're going to keep you know i'm watching these numbers religiously now is what's actually happening to credit creation and it is this is comes back to my point about it's the flow not the absolute size because if you you know it's 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 turning off you know, the water pipe, the gas pipe, all of a sudden, you know, it's turned off. You can't cook, you can't drink. Yeah. And and, I don't, and then we end up in this sort of, it does tend to, in front, unfortunately, it does tend to be like a Wiley Coyote moment. Yeah. That things just, and I, I always think back to 2008 and I was working at Citibank. I was in Cary Wharf, glorious June evening, Thursday night, which is always the big night. Everyone's out on Thursday night. Um, bars were empty and there was just a ring and you could never get a cab normally and there was a ring of black cabs all around Canada Square with their lights on and I knew I went like right we're screwed yeah and three months later yes. Lehman's happened now I don't think there's a Lehman's necessary out there but there are some what we don't know it's about the shadow system and the debt associated with that and this whole thing when people start you know people are now less relaxed about balance sheets all this sort of stuff they start looking at things forensically and that's and when you start and you know you open the curtains and the sunlight comes in then you that really shows up all the nasties and that's when things get so i'm i'm, I'm my overall way i'm looking at things is i'm actually from a, just from my own personal perspective um, I uh, I like long dated government bonds. I think if you can get sort of close to around four um, percent, I'm quite happy to have those. So, so for um, the time being, we're, as we discussed earlier, we're in a trading range with bonds. We're, we may be towards the top of that range or the bottom if you look at yields. Well, I'm looking at the long end. So one of the things so we what, look 20, at is ten sort of, years, twenty years. Well, it's sort of twenty or thirty years because I one of the things I look at is like the implied ten year, ten year. So the ten year, the the, the, the implied ten year yield in ten years time. And on U.S. Treasuries, that's close yeah. to four and a half percent. It's pretty much the same in, on on gilts. And I go, well, actually, I'm quite happy to take that rate. If I was a, a pension fund manager, I would be taking those rates. That's how pension fund yeah, managers no. look at how they manage their liabilities. Uh, oh, totally agree. Cautious on equities, but I actually do think, funny enough, there is value in parts of financials as a whole. But they they probably get, but they've already taken a lot of pain. Yeah, disproportionately. I mean, I'm talking about perhaps more in, in from a if you were talking about UK investors. So I, I don't, I'm not an equities guy. I don't really do specific names. Uh, I, I do hunt around for the smelly stories. So like I was talking about Ali Financial, for example, comparing their balance sheet relative to everybody else's. Where are the vulnerabilities? Because it's it's when you get these shocks and when, you know you go, where's the next one? They're like cockroaches. Yeah. Huh. 
But, you, but, but when it comes to equities, you're looking at sustainable yield, aren't you? Presumably, that's that's where you want to be. You don't want to be in the more economically sensitive sectors of the market. And you certainly don't want to be in things that will suffer if the dollar is going to be relatively strong. Um, yeah. So it's, I'm, I'm, it's a cautious environment. Um, yeah. I think that's, you know, this is this is this is no time to be making uh Ambitious investments, for want of a better description. Sorry. The sector that doesn't really fit into that is, is technology, because that, that, on the one hand, is definitely not a, what you'd term a cautious investment. On the other hand, it does tend to be a long-duration investment. Um, and so if long-bond yields were to come down, you know, so you might find money sort of... Get, so you've almost got that sort of barbell... Well, where yes and got, no, but at the same time... Um, Let's not forget that there are, you know, so all this technology is going on, but there's also, you know, you can talk about a chat, whatever, AI, but also there's the other side of it. So, if you know, for example, Google, okay, they have their services as well. But Google and Meta, they're basically large advertising companies. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, a very expensive consumer. So, you know, they're not that defensive. Um it's it sort of go for, you know, if you can find solid balance sheets, low PEs, good dividend yields. Uh, and there are some out there. I mean, I think, what was I looking at this? It's like legal in general, 8% dividend yield. Yeah. Yes. And it's consistently grown. No, no yeah. I mean, I'm just being, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying buy, you know, I never give stock tips, but I'm just, I, you know, because that's sort of, I don't one well, one. It's sort of regular when it comes to individual stock names, it becomes regulatory dubious. Uh, but from a overall perspective, you know, go and look at companies like that. Something with safe balance sheets that you that you will get paid and and and, and a, a good income. And as inflation comes down, they will benefit as well. So that they're more going to be more like the bond. Yeah. So they will do well with lower bond yields, um, whereas. People who have got low dividends and uh, growth. Well, if, if growth is, if we're not, if we haven't got growth, uh, and you know, I'm not sure. You know, as I said, I think this could be more like a balance sheet recession. That we go back to just, you know, economies mumbling along, not particularly great growth, but uh, it's not great for earnings, and um, so we maybe you know. Is it, are we going back to more of the the twenty tens, twenty the last decade? But we're not going to see central banks go back to zero rates, and, and they're going to, it, it would take an awful lot for them to get back to that level. So maybe we are going back to a pre sort of oh seven environment, oh eight environment, the more of the nineties, late nineties, noughties, where rates would go let's say in the us between three and six percent so will the fed really get you know things will have to absolutely fall off a cliff for for the fed to cut rates below in my mind about two and a half percent but rates could easily go back to two and a half percent if we as as we see inflation come down and one thing i would say about us inflation is particularly distorted higher at the moment by the lagging of shelter yeah 
So we're seeing house prices down year on year, rents down and or flat year on year or down year on year, and yet shelter in CPI is running at 8% because of this huge lag. And the Fed's done its own work. Cleveland and San Fran Feds have both done papers like this. So we know full well that at some point shelter is going to really drop down very quickly soon as well. So, the, so the, we could have a situation that, yes, as I said, in the next few months, we'll see very, very sharp falls in headline inflation, which in could, will probably, you know, could lead to interest rate cuts. And it actually may give, give equity some support, but at the end, ultimately, you know, I, I, I'm sort of near about equities um, and just fairly cautious full stop because we haven't, you know, we've still got a lot of pass-through pain to come through. Think about the UK and mortgage resets, roll-offs. Australia's seeing the same thing. It does not the same for the US, but Canada and other countries are. So all these sorts of things, as the, you know, as I said, you know, the, the lags of monetary policy are long. Um, I think the likes of SVB and Signature, they're, they're some of the, they are classic signals that policy is really starting to hurt and has probably gone too far. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, let, let's, let's, let's wrap up there, Patrick. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I think what our conversation shows is the, is, is the sort of need for a very disciplined um, and, and sort of real time approach at the moment and not to get carried away with any of the sort of prevailing narratives that are taking place. And, and you've yeah. given us quite a sort of contrarian view, but also a very measured approach to sort of asset allocation, I think, in, in the current environment. So in other words, even with bonds, where you're, you're relatively positive, at least at the long dated end, you know, even there, we need to be careful not to sort of take it, take it too far. So preservation, I think, at the moment of capital is, is the key thing for investors. Yeah, and we're I in, uh, what's his name? Uh... Not Roy Rogers, the other, is it? You know, it's not. It's not the return on my capital I'm concerned about. It's the return of my capital. It's the return of the capital. Yeah, Bart, Barton Biggs. Barton Biggs always used to say that when I worked with him at Morgan Stanley, especially because I covered Russia at the time. And in the end, of course, the capital wasn't returned. Yeah. Um, on that, on that, on that, and, and and we could have a whole discussion about China in that area, but that, there's no time for that now, unfortunately. Probably. So for institutional investors listening to this, um, if you get in touch with the IRF, we will put you in contact with Patrick. You can see a lot of his value is actually in in the sort of personal personal, uh, conversations uh, and presentations. Uh, But he also um, produces research on a very active basis as well. If if you're a retail investor, uh, you cannot, unfortunately, subscribe to his product, but he is active on Twitter think patrick you have about 24 25000 followers and you're at ppg macro right. on twitter so people can follow your work there patrick's been really interesting and engaging conversation thank you very much for your time it's been great today. talking to you too jp thank you Thanks.